This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Trent Maxey, Associate Professor in the Department of Asian Languages and Civilizations and the Department of History at Amherst College. Dr. Maxey is the author of The Greatest Problem, Religion and State Formation in Meiji Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. Dr. Maxi, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. I actually haven't had anybody on the podcast talking about religion yet. And so I've had a few listeners say, well, we need to get more religion. So how does the Meiji Restoration impact Japanese religion? And how does religion change in Japan during the Meiji period? So it's a surprisingly loaded question because, you know, the old kind of survey textbook way of talking about it is, you know, we're going to talk about Japanese religion and, you know, there's thus and such Buddhist sects, there's thus and such pilgrimage sites. And then we're going to talk about how these sects and these sites change or don't change or how certain new religions emerge in the kind of late Tokugawa period and express kind of millennial aspirations and so on. And that was a fairly kind of straightforward way of talking about it. But now, you know, in the last, say, 20 years or so, both scholars working on Japan, but also looking more globally, they're interrogating the, the word religion itself. And so now any discussion of where does religion fit in the Meiji period and in the Meiji Restoration is overlain with a kind of methodological question of, well, what are we talking about? What is religion and what isn't? And my interest has been primarily with how does the kind of Japanese term for religion, shukyo, come into focus? Where does it come from? And what does the fact that its identification and definition and eventually regulation becomes a kind of obsession of governing elites, what does that tell us about the kind of political space of early Meiji Japan? So, you know, with that as a kind of big <laughs> throat clearing exercise, I think there are kind of roughly two ways to talk about this. One is what's happening, what we might call, you know, the sociological story of religion broadly conceived, right? You know, how many people are actually hitting the roads to go to pilgrimage to Ise in the late Tokugawa period? How many people are joining new religions and where are they located? And this kind of, you know, sociological, for lack of a better word, texture of religiosity in Meiji Japan is very, very interesting. Nancy Stalker's book on the kind of development and rise of Omoto as a particular kind of new religion during this period, I think is really, really interesting and does a pretty good job of getting us towards an understanding of this kind of the social space of religion. I'm more interested in the political story of how defining what shukyo is and isn't, right? What religion is and isn't in the Meiji period expresses an underlying and abiding anxiety in Japan about plurality and fragmentation, right? That it's really a, how, it's, how difficult it is to forge a comfortable national space in the face of kind of religious plurality and how they're going to manage that. And speaking of common textbook narratives, 
particularly from the perspective of post-war hindsight and kind of casting an eye towards the 1930s and 40s when started when talking about the Meiji period is this narrative of state Shinto yeah. and talking about the Meiji restoration and, and kind of looking at the adoption of the Jingikan, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the kind of idea of restoration as, and the elevation of the emperor as the high priest of Shinto and say, well, this is clearly a moment when the Meiji state constructs state Shinto into a national religion. But in your book, you say it's not, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what I've always found interesting is starting with, say, Shimazaki Toson's, you know, really famous novel, Before the Dawn, right? There was always this image of the kind of nativist, Shintoist ideologues of the kind of restoration period um, ending up on the losing side of history, right? That their vision of a kind of theocratic Shinto-focused state is rejected. It, it is a story of failure and defeat. And even if you read kind of histories of uh, the Shinto priesthood and Shinto shrines that are attentive to this modern period, it's often a narrative of victimization, right? How is it that so much of the Shinto establishment, even into the post-war period, understood themselves as victims of the state rather than collaborators or you know people who benefited from the close sponsorship of the state. That victim narrative versus this kind of, as you say, kind of textbook view of state Shinto as this powerful ideological edifice seemed irreconcilable. But I think I think I found a way to, in which it's kind of both. It both are a kind of accurate in a sense. And I think the secret is to understand how it is that state actors gradually evolved a relationship to, again, religion as a category, and therefore in the process created the kind of defining parameters of modern Shinto. And they were above all really uninterested in the priesthood. They were uninterested in the kind of doctrinal and even ritual interests of these shrine priests. They were really only interested in what would serve the interest of solidifying the legitimacy of the imperial institution. And so that kind of double move, right? Maximizing the utility of the institution and minimizing the liabilities posed by the kind of priesthood and what the kind of modernizing elite saw as their anachronistic ways is what gives you both an image of state Shinto as a powerful ideological edifice, but also this victim narrative in which the priesthood does feel kind of marginalized and largely exploited. So religion can serve to ideologically integrate the Japanese people, even as the state itself becomes more secular? Yeah, that I think it really is this double move, right? That kind of sacralization and secularization are by no means um, antithetical, that they actually uh, go hand in hand, right? That they, they're kind of mutually constructed kind of views of the state, that the sacred and inviolable character of the emperor so famously kind of articulated in the Meiji constitution relies on a very clear and confident assertion that the emperor is not religious. 
One of the examples I, I like to give in my class of the kind of fervor for modernization, or I should say the fervor for westernization in Meiji Japan was the suggestions that you know, maybe Japan should adopt Christianity as the national religion. You know, this went along with maybe we should adopt Romaji for, you know, to, <laughs> to write the Japanese alphabet. Maybe we should all start taking foreign wives, you know, all these kind of uh, ideas. But in fact, what we see is the Meiji state comes out at the beginning as somewhat harsh against Christianity, do they not? They do. And it's always, again, there's an interesting kind of ambivalence, right? So, you know, you could use this with kind of other, not just Christianity, but other forms of ideas and ideologies where at a kind of elite level, there's a lot tolerated, but the possibility that the masses would adopt it seems very threatening, right? So you actually have the first public Christian burial that takes place in early Meiji Japan. It's conducted by Nikolai, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox missionary, um, is the son of one of the oligarchs. He had converted to Orthodox Christianity, and he dies relatively young. And so it's okay for him to have a public Christian funeral, even as there are powerful elements within the state that are extremely uncomfortable with legalizing Christian burial and therefore legalizing Christianity. Um, so I think there's that kind of dichotomy, right? It's okay for the, you know, the elites to dabble with it, but we're not really comfortable with everybody adopting it. That said, I think you're absolutely right that you have these kind of fascinating claims that, well, maybe we could, maybe we should just convert everybody to Christianity. There, there's a strange kind of casualness amongst some members of the elite, you know, Mutsu Munemitsu is often accused of advocating for just kind of, a, you know, let's propose a blanket conversion to Christianity and just make it the state religion. That'll make diplomatic negotiations for treaty revision much easier. It's a really weird idea, but I think it's, it's a very much an echo of what you're saying with the kind of, well, we'll just use uh, the Roman alphabet to write our language. What is the fear of Christianity and the fear of conversion then? Well, I think it's I think it's twofold. I mean, John Breen has written about this, and I think you know if you go back and look at the kind of the roots, the textual roots of anti-Christian ideas, it really is the kind of accumulated kind of textual ideology of the Tokugawa period. And so there is this kind of even grassroots, you know, pedestrian level view of Christianity as this kind of nefarious sorcery. Right, that it is Kiristan, right? There's a kind of boogeyman type image that was constructed during the prescription of the, the Tokugawa years. And so they're not necessarily prescribing it because they have a really clear and accurate understanding of the doctrine and so on. And you know, some of the opposition amongst the oligarchs is strictly pragmatic, that they're not even ideologically opposed to it, but they think having spent two and a half centuries running it underground to suddenly flip and legalize it would undermine the legitimacy of the, of the government. And that's one of the reasons why they're like, well, we just need to go slow. Eventually, it'll be, it'll be tolerated, but we just have to go slow. So there's that kind of pragmatic reason for opposing it. And then, of course, there are these diehards who just think, it's, it's just going to be the thin edge of a very wide wedge in which colonization takes place. So there is that kind of functional view of Christianity as a means of converting large numbers of people and then unifying them against the native government. And, of course, the elites pick up on this cue when they visit Europe 
uh, on the Iwakura mission, and they very quickly pick up this as the kind of standard anti-Catholic kind of narrative, the ultramontanism, right? This view that papists are only loyal to the Pope and that loyalty, you know, passes over national boundaries and therefore Catholics are dubious citizens. They pick up on that as a kind of parallel to what they're worried about. That again, it's not so much Christianity per se, but it's the direction of loyalty and influence that they're opposed to. I was always fascinated that that question of the hidden Christians in Nagasaki really does seem to be Japan's first diplomatic crisis. I mean, the newspapers around the world are talking about these hidden Christians coming out of the caves, but then also about the persecution of them. And so it seems that one of the holdups for the Iwakura mission or one of the obstacles was this question of the Christians and the persecution of Christians. But that I, I was thinking, is this kind of an analog for anti-foreignism throughout the Tokugawa period, going into the Meiji period. And then with that in mind, did scholars make too much of tearing down the Sakoku paradigm? Maybe there was a little bit more anti-foreignism encapsulated in these Sakoku policies that aren't really overturned until later in the Meiji period? Yeah, that's a it's a really f- interesting and fruitful thing to pull apart because, you know, so, you know, I use Andy Gordon's textbook in my modern survey, you know, A History of Modern Japan. And he, he has this great little framing statement in the early chapter about how, you know, it isn't that, you know, Commodore Perry and the opening of the treaty ports wounds an existing national pride but that it's responding to these pushy foreigners that generates a kind of nationalist self-consciousness in Japan, right? That there's a, there's a school of historians that, and I tend to agree with them, right? That there's a kind of important watershed moment in which self and other, a notion of Japanese-ness is kind of grasped and pursued in response to this long 19th century of, you know, industrial imperial powers encroaching into East Asia. But on the other hand, there is this, you know, important counterbalance to that that says, well, if we look at the Tokugawa period, there is a fairly kind of steady production of what we might call proto-nationalist conceptions, right? So the formation of Kokugaku as a kind of increasingly coherent intellectual prism with which to imagine Japan in relationship to the outside world, that precedes the arrival of Commodore Perry, it precedes the Opium War, and so on. And so there is a sense that yes, there is a kind of long-term generation of kind of foreign versus native as a prism for understanding Japan's place in the world that precedes the 19th century. And I think Christianity does kind of fall into that kind of kokugaku discussion, right? There's there's some fascinating research that's done on sort of, for example, Hirata Atsutane, who's the much more, for lack of a better word, kind of religious kokugaku scholar, as opposed to the more kind of literary approach of Motori. Hirata seems to have imported from China, Chinese translations of Christian texts, and used kind of Christian doctrine to create a kind of analogous Shinto doctrine. And so that suggests, you know, from an early on, you have some intellectuals who are explicitly trying to imagine a Japanese space and a Japanese kind of set of doctrines and ideas that are 
kind of functionally analogous to what they understand Christianity to be. And speaking of the place of Christianity in Kokugaku, of course, Aizawa Seishisai with the Shinron talking about the actual fear of Christianity and the way that it has to be kept out of Japan. And then you have the Shinto nativists like Maki Izumi. Is it that these ideas are, in a way, animating the early Meiji states' policies towards Shinto, but then those are kind of phased out towards the 1880s in, in favor of this more secularist approach? Yeah, I mean, I think I I tend to read the archive of early Meiji state discussions and the kind of actors in there in a very pragmatic way. I think these the, the men who made most of the decisions, right, Iwakura, Sanjo, all the way down to the kind of, you know, Hido, Okubo, and so on, they're fundamentally pragmatic. That pragmatic arguments seem to always win the day in these disputes. And they're initially attracted to these nativist frameworks and ideas because, A, yes, it, it bolsters the legitimacy of their new state, right? Because it's bolstering the legitimacy of the, the throne, the claim of the imperial institution. But the pragmatic issue that they're dealing with is how do we provide some sort of coherent unity, right? How do we bring the domains together? How do we bring a population together? So, you know, a kind of semi-apocryphal anecdote that often gets attributed to Maruyama Masao is that, you know, when Choshu fires upon the foreign ships on Shimonoseki, and then they're kind of retaliated by an you know, allied fleet of the French and the English and so on, and the French come ashore to disassemble the artillery batteries in, in Choshu, the story is that they had no trouble at all getting the local peasants to help them, right? The local peasants saw no meaningful difference between the samurai and these foreign soldiers, right? That they don't care. And, you know, this is the kind of, the how do you get the mass of the Japanese population to be less passive and more active, right? How do, That's the pragmatic issue they're dealing with. And I think it's in that process that they're looking at the Jingikang and Kokugaku ideas about native space and rituals and so on that seems like a useful way, a pragmatic way to get these people to become more active as, as opposed to passive. And again, as soon as they realize the, the Jingikang and these other things are not effective, they're very quick to get rid of them, right? They find other things are more effective, right? Compulsory elementary education, much more effective to reach grassroots hearts and minds than sending Shinto priests around the countryside preaching the three standards of instruction. So I think, again, for the elites, they're, they're initially drawing on a kind of conceptual vocabulary that was built up during the Tokugawa period to try to nationalize, for lack of a better word, the population, it doesn't work very well. So they're very, you know, they're like, it didn't work, we'll try something else. And perhaps one of the outcomes of, of the secularizing process, I think it was in 1921, it's declared that these Shinto rituals are now state rituals. Well, that, the, the actual declaration that shrines conduct the rights of the state is made in 1871. Hmm. And that it's never rescinded. Um, but what that statement means changes over time, right? How they interpret it. So, you know, up into the early 20th century, that was the basis for which, by on, upon which the Shinto establishment kept lobbying the state for greater 
funding, greater recognition. And by the time there's a fairly, you know, comfortably established conceit that, well, there's religion and then there's non-religion. And since the state, the emperor is not religious, therefore, you know, it's a syllogism, right? If the state is, an emperor is not religious, therefore the shrines that conduct rites related to the emperor must not be religious. So I think it is in that kind of, you know, early 1900s moment that that syllogism is kind of fairly stably established. I, I was just thinking, because there's this common understanding today that, and if you were to ask Japanese people today, well, is Japan religious? Most people would say no, but then, you know, you see every, everybody knows what to do at the temple. Everybody knows all of the the customs and the rituals. And I was kind of curious if, if maybe this is a product of how secular Shinto and other religions became during the Meiji period as a result of some of these policies by becoming more secular, did it allow them to become more ingrained in Japanese society? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's an argument that I think I'm very sympathetic to. So Shimazu no Susumu, you know, who taught for a very long time at Tokyo university, his recent work has really been trying to argue in favor of this kind of expansive definition of what state Shinto was, that it really was a broad ideological apparatus that took roots in people's lives. And if you kind of read what he's describing as Shinto, he's talking about what we would call fairly secular civic things. So he's talking about holidays and classroom rights and, you know, basically education and that by calling that something other than religion, it made it much more it permeable, right? It was able to permeate uh, social life much more effectively. Whereas religion gets constructed as this, it's doctrine, it's sectarian affiliation. And not surprisingly, a lot of people are kind of allergic to that, right? There's a lot of people in Japan to this day, if you say, are you religious? They're thinking, are you part of the kometo, right? Are you a kind of proselytizing you know, adherent to an organized sect? And a lot of people say, well, no, that's not me. That's that's not what I do, even though from an anthropological perspective, people are extremely religious, right? They, they, they conduct rituals in their lives. They, they go to shrines, they go to temples, they get married in churches and so on. So yes, I think that's, it's, it's clearly a function of that misalignment, right? This kind of fairly intentionally constructed definition of what religion is and isn't creating a kind of broad blind spot in the way people imagine themselves. to ask you about your classroom teaching too in your history classes when you're talking about religion during the meiji period what are some of the themes that you use or how does religion fit into your classroom teaching or does it i'm often really embarrassed by this it doesn't really figure in very much i was just recently thinking well maybe i really do need to make an effort to design a course that discusses how do we think about religion in history because I do find it slippery because, you know, as an intellectual historian by training, I'm inclined to kind of perpetually deconstruct religion. And in my modern survey, I feel like I'm still struggling to get students to abandon 
durable notions of a kind of exotic, stable, traditional Japan versus an entirely alien and imposed modernity from the outside, right? And emphasizing kind of pilgrimage, ritual sites, and these kinds of things tends to exacerbate students' ideas of a kind of durable, exotic, oriental Japan that I'm working against. So I find it actually kind of difficult to introduce it. I do teach a a separate course that's much more topical and global called Religion Empires and Secular States, where it's kind of a intellectual history of the 19th century and kind of getting students to follow arguments about where this category of religion comes from and how its discursive production is a function of imperialism and nation formation. So we look at you know so we look at Japan in that context, and there it's a little bit easier to get them to kind of engage with. Um, at least I find it easier to get them to engage with some of the themes I'm interested in the book because it's framed within a kind of global framework as opposed to the risk of it being, oh, religion is a cipher into the peculiar soul of the Japanese race. Speaking of religion and empire, we were talking before about the hidden Christians in Nagasaki. And and of course, there was this Martin Scorsese movie recently, Silence. Do you have any thoughts on this movie? Do you use that in your classroom? I am ashamed that it's been on my queue. I haven't watched it yet. But I, you know, in my pre-modern survey of Japan, I do, I do assign the book. Um, and we do talk about it. And, you know, we read, you know, sections of Deuces Destroyed, and we talk about the Christian century. And there, I tend to kind of lay heavy emphasis on the students about how that initial encounter between um, European Christians, especially, you know, Iberian missionaries, occurs in a space in which, you know, the Japanese islands, they are at equal or greater power than the arriving Europeans, right? So it's a kind of contact between a Christian and a non-Christian society in which the Christian side is in some sense at a disadvantage. And what does that look like? And what does that, how is that very different from the modern moment? And when we discuss silence, and I think this is the larger kind of interpreted debate, not just about silence, but in Doshusaku's kind of body of work, right? Where he, I think, upstreams his experience of being a 20th century Catholic in early post-war Japan, right? So he, I think, attributes certain um, kind of cultural dynamics to um, the 17th century that are very anachronistic, right? So the key passage or the key scene, I, I assume it's in the movie as well, is when You know, the young idealistic missionary is arrested and he's brought face to face with his apostate mentor. And the Japanese magistrate tells him, you know, well, Japan, Japan is a swamp, right? And Christianity is simply incompatible with this swamp and it's it's going to rot at its roots and so on. And in my class, I, I, I bring the students to the scene. I say, but when we understand the kind of anti Christian, policies that are adopted first by Toyotomi Hideyoshi and later further radicalized by Ieyasu, when we understand where those policies are come from, coming from, it's not a cultural story, it's a political story, 
right? This isn't about a kind of class of cultures. The reason Christianity is attacked and rejected is because Tokugawa Ieyasu doesn't see it as something exotic and inscrutable. He sees it as something he readily recognizes, right? He sees it as a perfect analog to the ikkoiki that Nobunaga and others struggled to violently suppress. So this kind of, you know, radically um, exclusionary uh, soteriological form of religion that Iko, the Ikoshu, you know, the Pure Land sect was capable of becoming entirely on its own without Christianity. They see Christianity as an analog to that. So I try to get the students to think about, you know, what's the difference between looking at this as a political story versus a kind of fuzzy claim of cultural incompatibility. And I think the novel does a bit of a disservice by by burying the, the plain fact that it's political violence that rejects Christianity. It's not culture that rejects Christianity. So do you have any other projects in the works or what's the next step in your research? So I'm, I'm slowly, slowly working on a book length study of um, the kind of the car and the kind of apparatus that surrounds driving in 20th century Japan and kind of wanting to tell a kind of cultural story that attends to the way um, material things actually shape culture and attitude. So I'm working right now on the interwar years in which the car makes its first splash in urban Tokyo. And I'm approaching it less as a kind of industrial story, right? There's a lot written on the history of the Japanese auto industry. Um, and But I'm much more interested in its kind of use and promotion. And in the interwar years, I find it very, very interesting to discuss the way the driver, who drives the car, who becomes a driver, what's their kind of socioeconomic status, how does that change, and what are the kind of representations that surround that. And what I found is that, you know, it's a, it's a surprisingly blunt and open uh, discussion of economic class, right? So we talk about class as this, it's a construct, but at least in interwar uh, Japan and interwar Tokyo in particular, the car becomes this amazingly effective uh, vehicle for people, no pun intended, um, to actually not just visualize, but also debate class. Who's, what class gets to ride the car? What class gets to own the car? And then more importantly, who owns the streets? Right. And so there's, there's even um, there's a, a short sat satirical play written by Osanae Kaoru um, that's a kind of one scene comedy between the proletarian cab driver and the bourgeois chauffeured car and the kind of unfortunate pedestrians who are caught between them in a traffic accident. And, you know, the punchline is all about, well, who owns the street, who owns the space? Um, and, you know, kind of then looking at this interwar period and the construction of the driver is a kind of important prelude to what comes after the war. So trying to both trace the roots of mass motorization in 20th century Japan to an earlier point, but also talking about how driving has sustained 
um, I think well into the 21st century, um, one of the more fertile spaces in which citizenship, freedom, responsibility, these things are kind of constructed and contested in Japan. Especially when you get into the the 1960s, this idea that all of the middle class families you have your car, right? and then you, you might go on your Sunday drives, things things like this. But I mean, the, the class element certainly where you know only people of a certain income class are able to own a car. But then even there's a class element to the street surfaces. Uh, there's been all sorts of work done uh, in the North American context talking about how the abutters of streets were the ones who were responsible for paying for the pavement. And so they would actually, you know, wealthier neighborhoods would have better pavements to a certain extent. So you could almost judge the quality of the street pavements uh, as an indicator of how wealthy that neighborhood was. And this was certainly something that the Meiji leaders thought of too, because when they go around in the Iwakura mission, they're always talking about, well, the, you know, the streets of London are great. The streets of Paris are great. Uh, and so they try to update the pavements in Tokyo as well as early as the Meiji period uh, and certainly through the 19 teens and 20s, uh, as you're talking about. I have this one great map laying out all of the different pavement materials around Tokyo. <laughs> wood, wood blocks, bricks, macadam, tar macadam, asphalt. And it's it's fascinating to see which areas of the city get the higher quality pavements. And so there's almost a geographic uneven distribution of certain pavements based not only on traffic density, whether it's a commercial area or not, but you can almost read a class element into that as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, when they, what parts of Tokyo are made after the quake, right? The 1923 Kanto quake, which parts of the city are made much more accommodating for vehicular traffic? And it clearly privileges the kind of the wealthy who are going to use it, right? And they're not interested in really investing much money or effort into improving roads and road spaces for automotive traffic and other areas of the city. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the construction of roads, I think, you know, especially, you know, from the high growth era onward, you know, I grew up in regional Japan, and the arrival of really fancy, well-paved roads from the 70s into the 80s, um, you know, in areas where really that didn't need it, right? It was kind of the hallmark of the kind of redistributive pro uh, politics of, you know, Tanaka Kakue and the LDP, and it's had this unexpected, I mean, unintended consequence where the building of these fancy paved roads in the middle of nowhere occurred exactly at the same time that they privatized mass transit and local train lines die. And it leaves regional Japan completely dependent on the automobile in a way that urban Japan isn't. And it kind of creates a kind of inverse, you know, the, the, the kind of class coding of the car is now somewhat different, right? So if you're in the kind of graying, aging periphery that no longer has reliable mass transit, you have to continually buy the affordable K car. Not the kind of, it's not a Lexus, right? It's just the kind of tiny dinky K car, but you have to have it. You can't live without it. And the kind of neoliberal reconstruction of, um, consumption, right? You have these kind of big box retailers and so on that's killed the kind of inner cities of these regional cities has completely a kind of exacerbated this dependence on automotive traffic. Whereas, you know, in the large urban areas in Tokyo, car ownership is 
you know, it's more difficult, but it's also optional. And it's a kind of, that's a new, new way in which class and region is coded through access to the vehicle. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.